Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Urban History Podcast at CU Denver. I'm Camille. And I'm Maggie. Today, we're going to continue to explore how patterns in our contemporary urban environment are linked to urban environments of the past. And today, we have our first non-CAP faculty guest. Yeah, so basically joining us today, he is a community organizer, co-chair of the Latino Education Coalition, and vice president of the Auraria Historical Advocacy Council. He's also a Denver native, and like Kino said, our first non-CAP faculty guest. Please welcome to the podcast, Milo Marquez. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, Milo. So I'd love to start with a bit of background for for folks who are unfamiliar. Um, CU Denver, the school that Maggie and I attend, is located in the Auraria neighborhood. And the Auraria neighborhood was a neighborhood that was displaced. um, And it wasn't a campus, you know, even just not very long ago. And I know that Milo can share a lot more about that. But we really thought that was really a perfect conversation and topic for having this podcast at this campus and really recognizing the past of where our campus came from before it was CU Denver, the very recent past. So Milo, can you please share a little bit about Auraria? Yeah, let me let me start by uh, telling, letting everyone know, I, I'm a fifth generation Denverite and my family moved into the Denver area. Although, you know, I, I do have an indigenous roots within my family and we, we did live in this land. Uh, we migrated throughout history, but my family really settled in Denver uh, about 100 years ago from southern Colorado and the northern New Mexico area. My connection with Auraria, you know, I had a lot of family that moved into Auraria starting in the 30s and the, the 1930s and the 1940s. And so they called that neighborhood home. Back then, they called it the West Side. Um, West Side. It wasn't, you know, I, I think Auraria was originally established as the Auraria neighborhood, the first mm. neighborhood in Denver. But as my family was moving in in the 1930s, they they called it the West Side. So Mm -hmm. I think that's important for folks to understand. My real connection with Auraria started about eight years ago when I started working with Virginia Castro, who's the president of Auraria Historical Advocacy Council. Virginia has a long history working on the campus from the 1960s when she was a student with her husband, Rich Castro, in the late 1960s as students at MSU Denver. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you know, I, I started to really understand what was happening, what, the real history of that Auraria campus. And I think I, I look back to Chavez Ravine in California in the 1960s as the first sign of gentrification that we saw here in the United States. Mm-hmm. We know the term uh, gentrification began in London in the 1960s, but we weren't using that term here in the United States. Auraria neighborhood, what we first saw in that neighborhood was that it was being blighted. In 1968, the community learned about a potential bond issue to build a higher education campus. Waldo Benavides and Rich Castro were uh, running the Westside Coalition at the time, Mm. and they collected over 2,000 signatures and tried to fix up houses in the neighborhood that were identified as blighted. Unfortunately, in 1969, the bond measure was passed and allowed the construction of the campus. And by 1972, they started actually building that campus. So that's a bit about the history of what we see in Auraria. That's interesting. So that that initiative that was taken on at Richcast and others in the area was essentially taking what was identified as a blighted area. And they were trying to kind of internally solve it to kind of let's take this challenge of this, the issues that the neighbor is facing, but make sure that we do it internally. Is that kind of what was happened there? And what, what were their goals in that effort that unfortunately didn't happen? 
Yeah, exactly. I, I think you're right. And what they were trying to do is preserve the neighborhood. You know, mm-hmm. um, the neighborhood had churches and it had schools and it had, it had a real community feel to it. And they felt that once this campus was built, they knew what was going to happen. These families that lived in this community were going to be displaced and mm-hmm. they wanted to do whatever they could to help keep the families and that, and that culture within that neighborhood. And mm-hmm. so they worked on raising money to help families that didn't have the means to fix up their houses, to show the city that, hey, maybe you should look at another neighborhood to build this campus. Yeah. Can you share about kind of sort of what happened to the families that were living in these homes? Yeah. So once the campus was built, well, they first, they started by tearing down most of the houses and they were offering homeowners a certain amount of money. I think it was $15,000 for homeowners, a little bit more if you had a business in the neighborhood. And then the renters were offered about $6,000. But what, what eventually happened is they started to tear down these houses and the community was displaced and then of course dispersed. And so when, when I talk about the dispersed community, these families were, were taken from that, from that neighborhood where grandmother and auntie and family members and the community, they were all together all the time. Once they were dispersed, they were, they were separated throughout the Denver metro area. Mm-hmm. I like that you bring that up because like the concepts of displacement and disbursement, because I, you know, I think it's hard throughout history, governments struggle to put a value on social infrastructure, but mm-hmm. the ability to reach your relatives and loved ones in your neighborhood, it's, it's invaluable. And that was, you know, obviously not factored into to these families having to move away and apart. Right. And I think it, it continues to happen today. And, and I think we've lost touch somewhat of what the importance of having that community. You know, I think everything today is about how much money we're going to make on our properties. And Mm -hmm. maybe it was back then as well, back in the 1970s, but we're seeing it today at alarming rates. These families are, uh, once they're dispersed, they lose their identity. They lose that culture. And a lot of times they lose their language as well. You know, as we talk about Auraria, it was a mostly Latino, Chicano, Hispanic neighborhood. These families came, uh, migrated from Southern Colorado and Northern New Mexico. And so uh, Spanish was spoken in the homes. And once, once they were dispersed, they were forced into new neighborhoods throughout the Denver metro area where that wasn't, those ideals were not as important as they were when they were living in the Auraria neighborhood. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we're kind of teasing at it here, but I think this is kind of the, the purpose and really what we wanted out of this podcast is connecting a injustice, a problem from the past, the displacement of Aurarians and connecting it to current times. And Denver is, and this is coming from um, some research we'll, that we'll quote, shifting neighborhoods from the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. But Denver leads the nation in the number of Hispanics on average being displaced from gentrifying Denver neighborhoods more than any other U.S. city. So this is a problem that is happening really currently. And, um, you know, Maggie and I are new to Denver and we're learning everything as we've moved here. But as we've heard from many people who have lived here, even just five years, like the the shocking quick change that has happened in North Side neighborhoods on the West as these neighborhoods have quickly gentrified is really alarming. So I'd love to hear your perspective on gentrification and displacement and dispersal today. So we talked a little bit about what happened in Auraria. And then I think it took about 25 years for us to start seeing the next wave of gentrification. Mm -hmm. And that 
first started taking off in North Denver, the north side. Today, they call it the highlands or low high neighborhoods. And we saw speculators going into those neighborhoods and offering families very low prices for their homes. And a lot of these families saw this large amount of money in their hands, probably the largest amount of money that they'd ever seen in their lives. And they took the money and they moved. They moved into out into Thornton, maybe out to Lakewood, and even as far as Brighton and Lock Bowie. And, that, and I think that was the first sign that we mm-hmm. saw. But then it continued to steamroll. We saw it in, in West Denver. We're seeing it uh, in the past 10 years in East Denver in uh, mm-hmm. what they're calling now the Rhino neighborhood along Larimer mm-hmm. Corridor. And if we think back to what Larimer Street was, you know, back in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, back then there were two Latino neighborhoods. It was the West Side, which is Auraria, and mm-hmm. East Denver, which is the East Side. Mm-hmm. And they were connected by a, uh, a streetcar that went all the way down Larmer Street and and connected these two neighborhoods. And, you know, grandmother may have lived in the east side and and their children lived on the west side or vice versa. And so these were just very community-based neighborhoods. And and, and what we're seeing today in East Denver with the construction of the World Trade Center over off of 34th and Walnut and the apartment complexes that are being built along Brighton Boulevard or along Welton Street, they're not only displacing the people, but they're displacing the businesses that have been there for generations. The bedrocks of our community, the churches that, that we attended, and the schools that are being shut down because there's not enough students anymore because mm-hmm. gentrification comes rolling right into our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing that at alarming rates. But we need to kind of ask ourselves, what is the goal for Denver? How do we see Denver at the current rate, we think in the next 10 years, the neighborhoods of color throughout Denver will be decimated. Uh, mm-hmm. There will no longer be any neighborhoods of color within the Denver city limits. And we'll see families moving out, um, being dispersed into some of the surrounding suburban communities. And once, once they're in those suburban communities, they'll continue to be forced to provide the services for the wealthier families that live in Denver. So they'll be traveling longer distances. Of mm-hmm. course, we know that RTD, the, the light rail is available in some of those communities, but they'll be paying more f- to use those light rail mm-hmm. um, because they're coming from further distances. But I think the biggest problem that we'll see is as these families are in these outlining it's like a ring around the city where the people of color will live and and come into the city. But as these families are commuting these long distances, coming into the city, working multiple jobs, what happens to their children? Who will be caring for their children when we know that displacement and disbursement causes our families to fracture and everybody to move into different areas? We're no longer going to have those communities where grandma's living next door or the auntie's living across the alley. Mm -hmm. And who's going to care for those children while our families are commuting those long distances? And then what happens to them once we don't have that proper care for them? And that's what the concern is for a lot of our community. You know, we, we talk about achievement Uh, amongst the Latino students and our Latino students are falling behind. And when you're facing gentrification, the loss of the language, the loss of the culture, the loss of the community, I think this just exacerbates that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That intergenerational support that is like Maggie mentioned earlier, you can't put a price on that. Uh, That social infrastructure that is, is just without price. I, I think maybe we did jump ahead too fast. And I, I would actually love to hear if you have 
maybe specific stories or memories of your time growing up in the East side, correct? Yes. And maybe places that you you've memories you have of places you spent time in maybe that are, that are gone or have changed now. Yeah. I, I think back to um, the corner drug stores that we would go to, you know, all, all the kids would go to the corner drug stores to buy the candy mm-hmm. or um, <laughs> that no longer exists or the um, La Hacienda restaurant where it, it, it was a bedrock in the community. Everybody went, uh, of course, they were priced out of the neighborhood mm-hmm. and, you know, it's changed hands over the years uh, and, and it's gone. Um, you know, uh, some of the, some of the restaurants on Welton street, uh, like Capri chicken, just some of these places that are just no longer there because of gentrification and, and what we're seeing to replace them are tap rooms and coffee shops. And some of the parks where our kids played, uh, are turning into dog parks. You know, there, there, oh. there's some, there's something that's said amongst our community that we say a lot. Once we see a dog park and a coffee shop, we know that the neighborhood is gone. We know that it's no longer going to be the neighborhood we, we grew up in. So, you know, a, as we get displaced and dispersed, the, the, a lot of those churches remain in, in the neighborhoods, except uh, it's not part of our community anymore. We, we may still attend those churches sometimes, but it's not part of our community in the sense that we're 25 miles away. And now we, we would come to the churches in a neighborhood that doesn't look like our neighborhood anymore. Mm-hmm. These are neighborhoods that we were really forced to live in because of redlining, you know, in the 1920s and the 1930s. And now we're being displaced out of those neighborhoods. So, and, and the irony of, uh, of white flight in the, you know, 50s, 60s, changing the urban environment. And then now that being flipped as, as white kind of flight come back into the city, that that's the desirable place to live and buy affordable homes in neighborhoods that were formerly redlined for, for folks coming in to gentrify these areas is, um, is just the impact of being pushed depending on where the more, more desirable current economics are moving. That's right. That's right. And I think a lot of folks are resentful of that. You know, Mm -hmm. one, they take this money and they move, but once they get to this new community, a lot of them have told me, wow, I realize now five years later that I should have never sold my home. Mm -hmm. You know, we've lost, we've lost so much more and maybe the money wasn't as important as we thought when, when it was put into our hands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think our community feels that, that they've lost so much by moving and mm-hmm. losing that, that sense of community is so important, especially amongst the Latinos and the other, other families of color. You, you know, I've, I've mentioned the, having grandmother and aunties mm-hmm. and cousins and, and everybody together. I think once they move away, they finally realize that it was much more important to have that than, than to have this new house in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. So through your work as a community organizer and through the organizations you're a part of, what are some of the, the things that you are doing to try to stop this tidal wave, I guess? So what is the work that you're doing to try to make an impact? Yeah, it's really unfortunate. First of all, I don't think that a lot of people are paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. And those that are, this wave of gentrification is happening so fast that we're forced to just put out fires instead mm-hmm. of getting to the root of the problem. And I think the root of the problem is educating our communities, educating them on the importance of retaining those homes, fixing up and improving their homes uh, and understanding that, you know, those folks that sold their house uh, for $100,000 seven years ago, those houses are now 
worth eight hundred thousand dollars, and and you can build that generational wealth if you stay in your home. So so I think it really comes back to educating our community. And I know Arari Historical Advocacy Council is doing that. We are trying to educate our community. And I know there's other groups out there in the community that are doing amazing work. But it, it almost seems like a lost cause because the system is set up against us. We have city council and, and we have the mayor's office who are rezoning. They're, they're changing zoning laws and allowing for multi-unit dwellings and developers to take advantage of these changes. And so grandmother might pass away and a developer comes in and buys grandmother's house and they turn it into a five-unit condominium. I, I don't know what we can do to slow it down uh, aside from getting the word out that this is a problem and it is, it is hurting our communities and just having these discussions. I think they're very important. Yeah. And you mentioned that. And, and, you know, as urban planning students, we see the importance of finding space in our cities for densification, but then you don't see the, you know, homes in Congress park or, or wealthy areas being kind of turned into higher density <laughs> units, right? You no. see it happening in, in places where, yeah, like you said, taking advantage of um, these rezoning. So it's a, the importance of finding places for densification without it prying on certain areas where like, maybe you, as you share, there could be more education about retaining that, that generational wealth in your home. That's right. I, I mean, truly, I'm just enjoying the background, right? As Camille said, we aren't from Denver and we're not even really from this part of the country. So it's just been interesting to hear your experiences and how things have changed over time. Yeah. It's, it's nice. You know, Den- Denver, what I've read recently is Denver is the second most gentrified city in America after Oakland. And we know that, you know, the proximity Oakland has to San Francisco is what accelerating that growth. Denver maybe being somewhat in the Midwest, I guess it's not, it's considered the West, but the proximity to the Midwest and people finding that, Hey, the weather's nicer in Denver. You know, um, I'm close to skiing towns and I have that, you know, the ability to go on a hike in the afternoon, but what people aren't realizing that, you know, as they come in, they, they want all of this at their fingertips, but it's causing harm to those communities that have lived here for years. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we, we, we can talk about the gentrification in Denver, uh, just in the Denver metro area, but this is also a statewide issue. We're seeing mm-hmm. gentrification up in our mountain towns and our skiing resorts, mm-hmm. uh, where our service industry, which is made up of a lot of people of color, can no longer afford to even live in those mountain towns. We're seeing it in the San Luis Valley where our families live and and our commercial land is being purchased by developers and speculators. They're taking away our crucial water supply uh, to increase commercial marijuana and cultivation. So we're we're, we're not just seeing it here in Denver, but we're seeing it throughout the state right now. Mm -hmm. What is something kind of speaking to an audience of a lot of planning students? What's something that you wish you wish more people in the planning realm knew about gentrification and displacement maybe yeah i i I think that you know what i've touched on already is um you know people have forgotten uh what brings happiness Hmm. and 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 it's it is really relationships and family and friends and community Mm -hmm. and and we could see that throughout history when when immigrants have come into into communities uh they've worked hard but they've also kept their families close because that's that was the importance of it. And I think we've forgotten that. And, and now the importance has, has shifted to how much money can we make? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talk to people every day that tell me, 
you know, isn't this great? You know, these families, aren't they excited that their home values are increasing in these neighborhoods of color? And I tell them, you know, I don't think that's the most important thing to them. You know, they didn't move into this neighborhood because they felt their home price was going to increase 50%. They moved into this community because that's where their grandmother lived. That's where their parents lived or their, you know, their, their cousins, and they wanted to be close to everyone. And I think we're all forgetting that what brings us that happiness. And we're all looking out for how much money can we make? And I think the developers have capitalized on it. And the the entire system is doing its job to help accelerate this. Mm -hmm. And so much of that also leaves, leaves renters behind or, or rising property taxes and things like that, that might be challenging homeowners. Um. That's right. You know, I, I, I just met with a community group in Westwood, which is a neighborhood in Southwest Denver. Uh, and about 10 years ago, the home ownership in that neighborhood was about 60%, 40% renters. Within about 10 years, it's flipped. It's 60% mm-hmm. renters and 40% homeowners. And I think a lot of those homeowners over there, uh, or, or the, the renters, I'm sorry, are renting from people that have purchase multiple homes in those neighborhoods, knowing that in the near future, those neighborhoods are going to be worth more and those neighborhoods will be gentrified. Right now, we are seeing 19 schools in Southwest Denver that are up for closure and consolidation. We know that 80% of the students that are impacted by these closures and consolidations are Latino students. What is causing that? Right now, Denver Public Schools is telling us that it's because of the gentrification that's happening. Mm. And their 10-year plan is showing that these neighborhoods will be gentrified at faster rates. Therefore, a lot of these families that are having more children, the Latino population will be moved out and new families without children will move in. Mm. The Latino population is the only group within this country who is seeing increases in population. All Mm. of the other groups are seeing decreases. So as we look at Southwest Denver, and we see um, these 19 schools on the chopping block because of gentrification, it's mm-hmm. alarming. Yeah. What is what is causing that? You know, and I've, I've talked to a lot of folks, including real estate agents, and a lot of them are selling homes in these neighborhoods and telling the potential home buyers who are not Latino or who are not folks of color, you can move into these neighborhoods. It's a bargain you're going to get a great return on your investment. And the positive side is that you don't have to send your children to these schools. Mm. And uh, because of school choice, it allows you to go anywhere in the city. Mm. And so we're seeing a lot of these families who are moving into these neighborhoods to get that bargain, but are not choosing to send their children Mm. to those neighborhood schools. Yeah. And not supporting those schools. Right. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, I feel like we could talk to you for a really long time. I really, I really appreciate this perspective you've offered about the social ties in these neighborhoods. I think that is something that is not emphasized maybe as much as it could be in, in planning and that intergenerational support. And I, I really thank you for your time. And I thank you for all of the work that you're doing across Denver. I w- I'm wondering if there's any final piece you'd like to leave us with here. <laughs> I think the, the final piece is where do I see Denver in the next 10 years? Unfortunately, I at the current rate and without educating our communities in the way that they need to understand this, what is actually happening. 
I don't see us in Denver in a very good place. I think we have a lot of work to do. And I hope the community comes together and all of the communities come together Mm -hmm. to start actually trying to slow this down. And instead of putting out the fires, as I mentioned before, get to the root of the problem, figure out what is what is really happening, and how can we stop this from taking over our entire city and potentially state. Yeah, solutions just out there. Well, thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. Uh, we always end our episode with a little a little segment you can listen in on, see if you have a, a thought on it. Um, <laughs> Maggie, would you like to introduce it? Yes. So the segment is called, Can Somebody Ask? Uh, and then we pose a question. And so this is my question. I was recently listening to an episode of 99% Invisible. I think the title is A Murder Most Foul. And so mm. they're just addressing how birds fly into skyscrapers. I listen to that too. Yeah. Yes. And so anyway, my question is, can somebody ask a either real estate developer or architect, if we know that there's a glass, a type of glass out there that is better for the environment and saving the lives of birds, why are we not using it? So can somebody ask an architect, why does the industry hate this, you know, bird approved glass? Little things you don't think about in our environment. Well, thank you. Do you know the answer, Milo? <laughs> I do not. I do know a lot of architects, um, and, and I'm happy to ask these architects <laughs> that question. Please do. We've got to find out. Well, thank you. Thank you very, very much, though, for your time and your work. We will share this podcast. Please share it to groups that you know, and I hope that others can learn from this conversation. Great. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Urban History Podcast at CU Denver. Join us next month for another episode connecting historical urbanism with contemporary urban planning. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at at urbanhistorypod, and we'd love to have you share the episode with a friend and leave us a review on your podcast platform. It really helps others find the show, and it also is nice to see. See you all next month.